Our sermon text this morning is from the book of Galatians in chapter 2, starting in 11 to the end of the chapter. So if you would grab your Bible and turn there, and then stand with me as you are able um, for the reading of God's Word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that though I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask um, that you would come and be here this morning. Lord, that you would push the worries and the cares of the day and of tomorrow out of our minds and allow us to focus on your words and on you. Would you give us ears so that we can hear what it is that you have for us this morning? Help us to understand what it truly means to be justified by faith and faith alone. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, churches are no stranger to conflict. And if you've been in church for any length of time, then that would not be a surprise to you. I grew up as a pastor's kid, so I have early memories of being in our home and having people from our church screaming loudly at my father, being really angry about some minor issue in the church. There's even some moments when fistfights have broken out in the middle of not just business meetings, but the church service. In fact, there's a number of them. I watched one this week where a fight started in the middle of a pastor's sermon right in the front row. And he just kind of had to pause because he didn't even know how to react, which I wouldn't either. So please don't do that this morning. <laughs> but conflict in churches, it's not new. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at and study some conflict between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Now, their disagreement didn't come to blows and end in a fistfight, but it was no less serious. And the question for us this morning is, well, what could be so significant that the apostles would fight about it publicly? Because it's not a personality conflict. It's not a disagreement over missional strategy. This was ultimately about Peter compromising and distorting the gospel through his hypocrisy. 
And so we need to learn here, I think, from Peter's failure, because if even the apostle Peter can make this mistake, then surely you and I can as well. And really, this whole conflict, as we're going to look at it, it revolves around a kind of a central question. That's the, the first blank in your bulletin. And this question is, who is welcome at the table? Who is welcome at the table? And so before we unpack um, Peter's sin of excluding Gentiles from the table, let's talk about what's just kind of going on in the passage. Let me give you a bit of a brief overview. What's happening is Peter is showing up. He walks into Antioch, and Paul immediately goes and meets him and confronts him. And he publicly rebukes Peter face to face. And the issue is that, well, Peter has just been eating with Gentiles. He's been welcoming them to the table, you know, having them in his home, treating them normally. However, when ultra-conservative Jews then show up to town, all of a sudden Peter ignores the Gentiles. He pushes them aside, and now longer he doesn't want to eat with them anymore. And because Peter is an apostle, he's influential. And now other Jews in Antioch are following suit. And even Peter... Or even Barnabas, Paul's friend, is stopping to eat with the Gentiles. And this is what Paul has a problem with. But the question is, why? What is it in his conduct in verse 14 that is not in step with the truth of the gospel? Why is it that who comes over to lunch is such a big deal that Paul would get angry about it? Well, it matters because in the ancient world, and even still today, right, sharing a meal with somebody is symbolic of having fellowship with them. When you eat together, it's kind of a declaration of that. Even today, right, you don't just invite random people that you lock eyes with at Walmart over to your house to have a meal. We, we understand that, or to sleep in your beds, we know that there's something larger going on here. It's not just about who Peter has lunch with. It's about whom is he going to have fellowship with. This is not just a passage about dietary laws. It's something deeper. Because the Jews at this point, right, they wouldn't even associate with somebody who is a Gentile. They don't want anything to do with them. They wouldn't talk to them, don't want to be friends with them, don't want to hang out with them, definitely don't want to sit down at a table together. And in fact, to be sitting down at a table and eating together would be scandalous. They would get noticed and their other Jewish friends would not like it. It would make them unclean. In fact, this is partially why the religious elite were so angry at Jesus often because he would go and he would share and have a table with sinners and spend time with those who looked unclean. And I think about how much stronger they would have felt if Jesus spent all that time eating and sharing the table with Gentiles, which is even worse. In Acts 10 and 11, you can read about this. Peter talks about this very thing. God sends Peter a vision, right? And he, sent, he has all this food before him that's unclean and says, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's opposed to eating. He says, I've never eaten any unclean thing, and I don't be around unclean people because I am taking my faith seriously. But God tells him, no, don't call what I say is clean, unclean. And then a Gentile knocks on Peter's door and says, hey, I want you to tell me about the gospel. And when Peter responds, he tells Cornelius, Cornelius, I wouldn't even come and preach the gospel to you unless God told me it was okay for me to be in your presence and to hang out with you. This is Peter's background. This is what he's coming from. This is where the circumcision party is. And there are some of these Jews, right? They call themselves the circumcision party because they're not letting this issue go. They do not want to eat with Gentiles. They don't want them at the table. It's not just because Gentiles might eat unclean food. It's because Gentiles are unclean people. And I don't want anything to do with them. The Jews might have taken Jesus' hand, but they won't let go of the law. They might have embraced Jesus, but they don't want to embrace the people that Jesus himself embraced. 
So when these people come into town to visit Peter in verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back. He separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter has no problem meeting with the Gentiles when there aren't any Jews around who will be upset about it. But when they come, he follows the law again. And it seems that Peter does this from pressure, right? Fearing the circumcision party. He's afraid, and so he does this out of fear. He does what he knows to be wrong. He cracks under pressure, which is not unusual. We've seen Peter do this repeatedly, especially at Jesus' crucifixion, where Peter denies Christ three times. And so we might wonder, what, what is the problem? Is it just that Peter's afraid that he's giving in when he shouldn't? You know, I mean, after all, Peter, is, he's being a good missionary, right? He's following the law when he's around people who think they need to follow the law, and then he's with Gentiles who don't need to follow the law. He doesn't. So you might just think this is a secondary issue, right, of a weaker and stronger brother, like it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians. Let me use an illustration to show a little bit what is happening here on at least one level. I want you to picture a, picture a white pastor who moves down to the south in 1950 during Jim Crow. And now when he gets there, at first he has no problem eating together with some of his black parishioners and sharing a table with them. But then those in the white community get upset and say, hey, no, we're not supposed to eat together. Don't you know they're unclean? And so then he cracks and he gives in and he segregates himself and then gets other white liberals in the church to do the same thing. This is partially what Peter is doing here. Is he is segregating and separating himself. There's a racial and kind of an ethnic dynamic um, to Peter's exclusion. They're communicating to the Gentiles, well, sure, Jesus died for you, and you're welcome to come be a part of our church community. Uh, sometimes, maybe, but not always. And Peter is allowing this ethnic tension here between the Jews and Gentiles to overshadow the gospel. So now there's a racial element that's part of it, but it's not his only sin issue, and it's certainly not the whole thing. He's also a hypocrite. He's saying that Peter can follow the Jewish laws kind of whenever he wants and doesn't want to, but he's demanding that the Gentiles now follow the law. In verse 14, as Paul says, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, if the Gentiles are going to eat with Jews, it doesn't just mean they need to have a different menu. It means first they need to get circumcised. It's not just about mealtime, it's about a lifestyle change. And Peter is going back on what God told him in Acts 10 and 11 through visions. Peter's going back on what he himself said in those chapters and in what the apostles said in Acts 15 when they had the council to say that, no, the Gentiles don't have to follow the law. And he's going back on what he himself does repeatedly. He's a hypocrite. That's why twice it says that he is acting hypocritically. And ultimately, Peter's conduct is sinful and wrong because he's distorting the gospel. His conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. What Peter's conduct does is it is communicating and telling the Gentiles, you are welcome at the table, you are welcome to have salvation in Jesus as long as you follow the law. Sure, you're saved by faith, but here's what also you need to make sure that you do if you want to be in. If you want to be a true Christian, you need to be circumcised. If you want to be a true Christian, you can only eat these clean foods and follow also this other big list of rules that we have for you. Whenever you start telling people they have to follow your extra biblical rules in order to be a Christian, you're distorting the gospel and you've missed it. You're acting similarly to Peter in this passage. And so what we need to do, we need to ask ourselves, how are we tempted to compromise the gospel? What are the rules that I'm tempted to, to throw on other people that aren't in here that they, I'm then telling them they have to follow? I taught a Bible study in low-income housing one summer. 
Um, and after I finished, I remember that he was kind of in the common room, and so then there was a man who came up and wanted to talk to me. And he wasn't a part of the Bible study, and so at first I thought, well, great, he might be interested. Um, but he saw that I was wearing what a Liberty shirt where I went to school, and he wanted me to know that he was a Democrat, and he really hated Liberty, and he definitely hated Republicans. And I thought, oh, great, fun. This is not what I expected after my Bible study. Um, and so then a lady from my Bible study came up, and then she was getting very heated and was egging me on and really wanted me to rip into this guy and to yell at him and to correct him. And I refused, and I, said, and I told her, I said, look, I don't really care if this guy isn't a Republican. I care that he's not a Christian, which he tells me that he's not. And you know what happened? This woman, who was my biggest fan two weeks ago, screamed and yelled at me, started telling me that I was an apostate. And then started again, you know, and then the Bible study kind of ended up dying because she went and told people I was compromising the gospel and not really teaching the truth because I wasn't following the extra biblical rules. We distort the gospel when we make our faith about something other than faith in Jesus. When it becomes, you need to be a Republican, and then we can talk about, you know, if you put your faith in Jesus or not. No, no, no. We cannot get this order flipped on anything. We distort it when we tell people they can't come be with us until they become something or until they accomplish something. And that's what Peter is doing to the Gentiles here. He's saying, you're only welcome to the table when you follow these rules. So that's what Peter does with his sin. But why is Paul rebuking him this way? So, well, Paul publicly rebukes Peter's sin, right? And he does this because Peter is compromising the gospel. Peter's acting like a hypocrite, and this is serious. And so Paul opposes him. And this word for oppose, I opposed him to his face, which that seems pretty strong language anyway, right? But let me show you some other places this word opposition is used. It means to set oneself against. Okay, it's used in James 4, 7. Beginning of that verse says, submit yourself to God and be opposed to the devil. Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter 5, 9 to say, oppose the devil. Timothy uses it in 2 Timothy 3, 8 to describe the magicians in Egypt who opposed Moses. This is strong opposition. It's strong language. You, he is resisting Peter like you would resist Satan, is what Paul is saying here. It's not a minor squabble. And this rebuke, it seems to be out where everyone can see him. And he does this publicly because Peter's sin is public. It's not a private one. It's not behind closed doors. Everybody could see what Peter is doing visibly. I talked about this spiritual principle, if you remember, back when we were in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, and we talked about church discipline. Right? The more public the sin is, the more public the rebuke should be, especially if it's somebody who's in leadership like an apostle. And some will try and use Scripture to defend themselves, right? They would come and rebuke Paul and say, Well, Paul, you should have read Matthew 18. It says if somebody sins, you need to pull them aside and confront them one-on-one -on -one individually before you make this public. But Peter's sin was public. It demanded a public rebuke and public repentance. And not only is this sin public, the consequences are public in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews are following along suit. They're acting hypocritically along with him. And even Barnabas is being led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter is affecting the whole church and the churches beyond him. The reality is your sin never just affects you. Our sin has consequences beyond us. This is a lie that the enemy whispers in our ear. Oh, it doesn't hurt anyone. It won't hurt you. It doesn't hurt anything. Your sin always affects much more than we ever want to believe. And our sin often, too, harms the community. 
And Peter's sin certainly is harming the church, not just the church in Antioch, but it is reverberating throughout the larger and global church. And that is why he is confronted, because the gospel is at stake. Because if Barnabas is starting to change too, that means the Gentiles won't be far behind, because Barnabas is serving alongside Paul and witnessing to the Gentiles. And if Peter compromises the gospel, now the Gentiles are going to think, well, the only way we can get saved is if we follow the law. Gentiles will start to think, we're not welcome at the table with the church and with Jesus unless we become clean. And the only way to be clean is by following the law, according to the circumcision party. That is the distortion that Paul is opposing. But there's something profoundly beautiful about this passage. One, it's a reminder that the apostles are human beings. Okay, Peter was not an infallible pope. Yes, he was a saint, but he was also a sinner like you and like me. And he still made mistakes and had to be confronted, sometimes embarrassingly publicly. But the most remarkable thing here is that Peter repents. Peter doesn't split the church. Peter doesn't get into a loud argument with Paul. He doesn't get defensive. He does what is right. That is what I love about Peter. Yes, he sins. Yes, sometimes he sins big and loud and really bad, but Peter repents. And Peter comes back to Jesus and Peter acknowledges what he should do and why. Because Peter reveals he really does believe the gospel. And he eventually conforms himself to it, even though his conduct at some points is out of step with the gospel. And this should be our hope, right? Whenever we confront somebody about sin, our hope should be that they repent. We should oppose them maybe even to their face, as Paul does some moments, but our hope shouldn't be that we just fight and have a church split, but that they repent and come to the gospel. Ultimately, all of this is about this conflict, really. It's about who gets to be invited to the table, who gets to be, come and have fellowship with Jesus. And Peter had to be rebuked because he was making fellowship contingent on legalistic rules. But what does Jesus say? Who does Jesus say is welcome and based on what? Well, your, your second blank here is that Jesus says that everyone with faith is welcome at the table. Everyone with faith is welcome to the table. I want to kind of extend this metaphor of table fellowship out. Okay, because it's not just about who do we eat with. It's not just about who comes over to your house and who's in the church community. Ultimately, this is about fellowship with God. Because in some sense, this is part of what salvation is. Right, our sin cuts us off from fellowship with God. We can't be in His presence anymore. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they had to be cast out of the garden. Your sin makes you unclean. You can't be around God anymore. It puts a, our sin puts a wall between us and God. And the Mosaic Law was given not so that we could make ourselves clean enough to get back in His presence, but to show us how deeply unclean that we are, how far away from Him we are, how deeply removed, and that no matter how much we clean ourselves up on the outside, that on the inside we're still unclean and we have uncircumcised hearts. So Jesus came, this is why he came, in order to make us truly clean. Verses 15 through 14, they repeatedly talk about how we are justified, 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 justified. It says it over and over. Being justified, it means being made right with God. It is being declared clean. It is our salvation and being justified is what makes us able to come and sit and have fellowship with God at the table. To be in fellowship with him again as Adam and Eve once were. But to do that, we need a redeemer. 
We need salvation. We can't do this by ourselves. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot be justified. You cannot be made clean. You can't get yourself an invitation to the table with God in any other way than faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. That is the only way. This is the remarkable thing about faith. It's the only invitation. It's the only way you can get on this guest list. But the invitation of faith, it has been sent out to everyone. It's exclusive, but it's not exclusive so much that, you know, nobody can get in. Everybody is invited to Jesus' table. There are several parables Jesus told, right, of the, the kingdom of God being like a wedding feast. And the invitations go out to anyone who wants to come is welcome. The only way you can come is through faith. you got to RSVP. But the only way you can RSVP is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. But anyone who does there is welcome. But you have to believe it. The problem is that some of these Jews think they should get invited just because of who they are. All right? they, they expect they can just show up at the gates of heaven and say, Don't you know who my father is? He's Abraham. Let me in here. I'm a part of the people of God. I should be on the list. Check again. They think they should be justified and allowed to commune with God because of their works. And this is why Paul starts in 15 and he says, you know, we know ourselves, we're Jews by birth. You hear the pride there. We're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We know, guys, that as Jews we have a heritage as the chosen people of God. Yet, 16, we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ because by works of the law at the end of 16 no one will be justified their heritage and their following of the law no matter how perfect they think they can get it will not justify them before God it will not get them a seat at the table through their own works and verse 21 at the end it tells us you know if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose this is the entire reason that Jesus came the reason that he died on the cross and shed his blood and the reason he was resurrected is because none of us could be saved or justified through works. The only way to salvation is through faith and faith alone. If you could get there another way, Jesus wouldn't have had to come in the first place. The temptation of the Jews, honestly, it's the same temptation that we face today. Because we want to be able to earn the right to be at the table with God. We don't want pity. We don't want handouts. We want to earn it. We want to be discerning, deserving. We want to get our salvation. We want to feel like we have a right to sit there along with everybody else. But verse 18 warns us what happens when we try to do this. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. When we start acting legalistic again and making our faith about our rules, when we start to believe we can earn our place at the table of fellowship with God, the moment that you try to earn it, you prove why you didn't deserve it in the first place. Because you're a sinner. We prove our sinfulness over and over. Well, what then does that mean? Does that mean that every time we sin, we're in danger of losing our salvation? Especially verse 17 can be kind of confusing. It's a strange verse, but I think it answer, answers that question. You know, does, our, does a Christian sin get us kicked out of the table? And 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now, has anyone here been found to be a sinner? 
right? Maybe even you were found out to be a sinner after you put your faith in Jesus and were born again and invited to the table with God. Well, sure, of course. Many of us probably were found out again this morning. Um, some of us not long after we woke up. It was fairly quickly for me after I got out of bed this morning that I once again was found out to be a sinner and had to repent. Now, was that Christ's fault that I did that? Or that you did whatever you did? No. Did Jesus make us sin? No. Because let me give you kind of a paraphrase of 17. Well, what if when I get invited to fellowship with God and I show up, I mess things up and I start acting like a sinner again? Is Christ going to throw me out? Will he be embarrassed and will he want nothing to do with me? Is he going to take me off of the guest list? Certainly not. Certainly not. It's as emphatic as you can get in the Greek. It just proves that you're a sinner and the only reason you got invited to the table in the first place is because of faith. Not because you deserve to be there because you were so well behaved with your great manners. Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. So what we need to do is we need to stop acting like we've been invited to the table with God because of how good we are. The Jews needed to stop thinking they got a better seat at the table because of how well they listened to Moses. We need to stop thinking that we deserve to sit at the table with God because of how often we go to church. The only way we get invited is through faith and faith alone. We have to die to the law. We have to die to trying to follow rules. We must die to the idea that we can earn our salvation or our justification. Verse 20 is one of the great verses in the Bible. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's probably at least one person in here. This might be your favorite verse or your life verse. Our old self is dead and gone. Jesus did not just come and invite us to come sit with him and spend time with him. He changes us from the inside out. He comes and he lives in us. But often, too, we don't finish the whole, the whole rest of this verse in 20. And I think the rest of the verse is just as worthy of memorizing and hiding in your hearts. And, so I'll read it all again. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. We can only live the Christian life through faith. It's, it's not, you know, I was crucified with Christ and now I live by the law. But, you know, I got here by faith, but now it's the law. No, it's we live through faith. And not just arbitrary faith. Not some kind of generic just belief in yourself. It must be faith in the Son of God. That Jesus Christ. So, well, faith in what? Faith that Jesus loves you. Faith that he gave himself up for you, that he died on that cross and hung there and bled out for you because he loved you and he died in order to save you from your sins. That is what faith is. You must believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he died to welcome you to the table and to provide a way that you could be justified in order to be there. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, but when we try to restrict the table or salvation, when we try to make the gospel about doing something instead of about believing in someone, when we start trying to make it about circumcision instead of the cross, when we make it about a list of rules and do's and don'ts, we nullify grace. 
Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that you're losing your salvation when you do that? No, otherwise we would all be in trouble and we would lose it multiple times a day. No, what this means is you don't understand what faith is. You're nullifying it. You're, you're making it seem like at, at some level you think that faith is about doing something, not trusting in what Jesus has already done. If you think you can earn your place at God's table, you're so sorely mistaken. You're acting as if Jesus died for no purpose because you can take care of it on your own. We need to remember, too, how Jesus so often acted in his ministry. Think of the kind of tables that Jesus found himself at. He sought out the sinners. Jesus sought out the unclean, the lepers, the blind, and the sick. He spent time with people who were dirty and who were avoided by those who were so proud of their righteousness and their cleanliness. That's who Jesus went and saw. Zacchaeus is a great example of Jesus' invitation too, right? Zacchaeus went, wanted to see Jesus. And he climbed up on that tree and Jesus showed up to see Zacchaeus the tax collector. Right? Zacchaeus, the man who no self-respecting Jew would ever want to be in the presence of. And Jesus went up and he invited himself to dinner. Before Zacchaeus said a word, Jesus said, I'm coming to your house today. And the people grumbled. But Jesus came too before Zacchaeus repented or did anything. Jesus showed up before Zacchaeus made himself clean and pure. And Zacchaeus just had faith and he just wanted Jesus. And Jesus came and invited himself to the table. Jesus didn't say, make sure you quit your job first. Make sure you do a list of all these things before you can come into my presence. Jesus just came. And then because he was there, Zacchaeus was transformed and born again and changed. But beloved, the, the table of God is open for you. I, I, I almost wish we were doing communion again this Sunday or this part of why I, I, I love doing it, would love doing it every week because it's a reminder of the gospel that every week and every day we are invited to be at the table with Jesus, to be in communion and to be in fellowship with God. And the only way we get there is through faith. We only have it because of the gospel and the table's open. There's a seat saved for you at the wedding feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation when Jesus returns. Your name can be on the guest list in the book of life. All you have to do is to put faith in Jesus. You have to believe that He is the only way you can get on that list. You don't have to deserve it and you can't earn it. You just have to come to the table through faith. And Christian, too, we need to stop thinking that we deserve to be there. We need to stop thinking, trying to make ourselves seem better than we really are. Make ourselves seem like we have it together and we really, oh, yes, of course, I've read my Bible every day this week and had, you know, brilliant insights nonstop. Because we want to seem really righteous and ready and as if we deserve to be here. Stop trying to follow laws and extra rules just so that you can feel like Jesus loves you. Because if I do it, then maybe I'll, I'll know he really does love me. And Jesus already showed you how much he loved you when he died on the cross for you. He gave, 120, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You are only at the table because of 
faith in Jesus and because of his love. And that love is not contingent on what you do. So who is welcome at the table? Jesus says everybody is welcome as long as you have faith. So have faith, beloved. Come and eat and drink with Jesus at the table of God. We'll close us in prayer and invite our worship team to come up and lead us in song once more. God, I thank you that you have invited us to have fellowship with you, fellowship that we do not deserve, fellowship that we lost in the garden when we sinned and that we could never get back. But you came, you gave up your life for us. You suffered unimaginable pain and you sacrificed yourself for our sins so that we could be made clean, so that we could be justified, so that we could deserve to sit at the communion table here and one day with you when you come again. That we could be in your presence and we could walk before your throne boldly like it says in Hebrews 4 by the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have faith. If there are any in this room who have not yet put their faith in Jesus, Lord, would you call them to yourself? Would you give them the strength to do it? Lord, for those of us here who do love you, who put our faith in you, Lord, would you continually remind us of how much you love us and that your love for us is not contingent on what we do. That we don't have to have amazing table manners in order to be let in or to, in order to be in your presence. We just have to have faith and want to see you. Lord, help us to be a people of faith not a people who try to earn their place. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior through song once more. I hope you would rather have Jesus than anything, because he's worth more than anything this world has to offer. Before I read our benediction, a couple of you, I printed off copies for my manuscript that needed it. If you wanted one but were afraid to ask or didn't want me to know that you need one, there are some copies on the table um, in the back out there. But our, our benediction is from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. Go in peace.